Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, Finley Mayor Christina Mern is in Washington, D.C. this week for the annual winter meeting of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. She'll join us to share her take on the official agenda issues and the discussions that go on behind the scenes. Also this morning, SNAP recipients who are about to see a significant reduction in benefits will likely be forced to rely even more on organizations such as the West Ohio Food Bank. Are those agencies prepared for that increased demand? And over the past 40 years, tremendous advancements have been made in the field of veterinary medicine that have improved the quality of life for all animals. But does this field face the same challenges as exist in human health care? This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Wednesday, January 18th, 2023. Sixty-one days until spring. Now, 61 days. If you got a little spring fever yesterday with the mild weather, then uh, you can be assured that uh, we are counting counting it down. 61 days until uh, spring now. So, uh, so actually, that sounds uh, like a lot, doesn't it? I mean, 61 days. And again, yesterday it was kind of mild, really nice, and we got a touch of that uh, that spring fever. Still have a couple of months before we have to, uh, before we're uh, able to truly celebrate the beginning of spring. So here is the uh, story. Wednesday, today, we normally think of as the midpoint of the week, right? It is hump day and and all of that. Uh, We're over the hump and heading downhill into the weekend. But what if instead of being the exact middle of the week, Wednesday was the first part of the second half of the week? Um, it may actually be in our future. The results are in from a six month trial, uh, and the results are clear. It is time to take Fridays off forever. Friday should be not the last day of the work week, but the first day of the weekend. This was a trial. You remember, we talked about this some months ago, about six months ago when the trial started, Uh, It was organized by a group called Four Day Week Global. It was a trial involving 33 companies and employees in six countries that were given a four-day standard work week instead of the typical five-day week. And they didn't have to work any more hours on those four days. They just cut one day off of the work week. And the question was, were... Workers just as productive working a four-day week instead of a five-day week did as much get done and were businesses just as profitable with a four-day week as a five-day week. And the results are in and they were positive. Companies in the program reported not only maintaining their revenue, but also but actually increasing revenue and Workers were happier and healthier. Uh, one employer, since Soothing Solutions, uh, claims the four-day work week has allowed employees to explore their hobbies, spend time with their loved ones. It puts them in a better mood for those days that they are working, and they are more productive on those days. Uh, one of the uh, founders of that company said, as an example, one of their employees who had an elderly parent who was terminally ill got to spend extra time with them with the more 
uh, with the days uh, off, and thus they were less stressed and less worried uh, during the days they were working, and it uh, worked out well. So now this was, I look at this and I said, this is still a very limited study. It's only 33 companies um, and six countries. There are a lot of countries. There are a lot of companies. Uh, so I would think that maybe an expanded trial would have to work. But the initial results are positive. So you can take that to your boss. <laughs> Make Fridays the first day off instead of the last day of the uh, of the work week. A um, couple of other items among the first things you need to know this morning. Want to get more exercise? A study out of Arizona State University shows that the famous Monty Python silly walk sketch might prove to be an effective way of exercise. <laughs> there might be something to this. Uh, let's see here. Dr. Glenn Glaser, Arizona State University. He's an exercise uh, physiologist and longtime Monty Python fan, uh, says the silly walk uses more than twice the energy of a regular walking pace. He equates the silly walk with running more than five minutes. So a five-minute run uh, and the silly walk are roughly uh, the same quality workout. He said 15 minutes a day of the silly walk meets the guidelines for weekly vigorous activity. You may remember the Ministry of Silly Walks sketch uh, with uh, John Cleese, Michael Palin. Uh, Dr. Glaser says the walk by... John Cleese's character in that sketch is the more effective exercise. And if you don't know what we're talking about, Google it. Uh, the videos are up on YouTube, and uh, so you can walk this way. <laughs> Dr. Gaser's findings uh, published in the British Medical Journal. Of course they were. So, uh, need some exercise today. Uh, just engage in the silly walk around the office and... Uh, <laughs> The boss will be just begging to give you an extra day off. There's, why don't you just go home? Why don't you just go? Uh, let's see. Here's another uh, story. This kind of um, relates to what we were talking about yesterday. Study after study after study identifying uh, what causes depression and the cures for depression and anxiety and, and things like that. Uh, so this is a study out of the Finnish Institute for Health and Welfare, Finland, uh, has found that spending time in nature reduced patients' need for commonly prescribed medications. Again, from the file of, duh, you get outdoors, you enjoy some fresh air, it's very refreshing, clears your mind, you need fewer medications. The scientists published their findings in the Journal of Occupational and Environmental Medicine, noted conditions including high blood pressure, asthma, insomnia, anxiety, and depression could be improved just by getting out and enjoying Mother Nature. <laughs> Forests, fields, beaches, all had an overwhelmingly positive effect on people compared to those who don't spend time in the great outdoors. Duh! Again, do we really need a study to tell us this? Apparently so. 
Now, they did note that this was an observational study tracking the responses of tens of thousands of people. So a direct cause and effect study will have to be done to verify the findings. But that said, those who visited outdoor spaces three or four times a week were associated with lower odds of needing psychotropic medication, high blood pressure medication, and medication to treat asthma versus those who did not. The researchers then concluded that this study and others should lead city planners to increase the supply of high-quality green spaces in urban environments and promote their active use. So, there you go. Get outside. <laughs> you want to feel better? Get outside is the long and short of it. They put a whole research paper together just to tell us if you want to improve your mood, get outside. That's... They say that dogs are man's best friend, but a new study out of the University of Michigan has con has concluded that toddlers are a dog's best friend. They uh, conducted a five-year study and found that children between the ages of two and three years old are twice as likely to help a dog get a treat or a toy that they're working at. And uh, children were more likely to help a dog if they lived with a dog themselves, which I guess makes sense. The results show that children as young as two years old are able to understand when an animal, in this case a dog, is trying to achieve a certain goal, like getting their paws on a treat or a toy. And uh, they are not only able to read the goal-directed behavior of the animal, but can and do employ that knowledge to help the animal reach its goal. So in other words, toddlers are most likely to help <laughs> your dog sneak a treat or get a favorite toy that maybe you've put away so the dog doesn't get it. Toddlers are more likely to help them uh, do that. The uh, lead scientist of the study from the University of Michigan, Dr. Roshna Reddy, said 97 toddlers and three good dogs, Fiona, Henry, and Seymour, were involved <laughs> in the study. That was kind of kind of cute. Dogs may be man's best friend, but toddlers are dogs' best friend. And I'll tell you what, speaking of uh, man's best friend, um, this guy may be a dog's very best friend, an Iraqi war veteran. This is a good news story. I love this story. Uh, put a smile on my face when I saw this on the Newswire this morning. An Iraqi war veteran... Uh, used his expertise in the field to help track down a suspected dog napper and get the dog back home to its family. Avery, a stolen Yorkshire Terrier who belongs to Raquel Witherspoon, is safely back home thanks to Richard McComer, who credited his, his marine intelligence training with helping him locate the dog and the dog nappers. Ms. Witherspoon's dog was snatched from her front front yard and uh, part of her doorbell camera uh, recorded the whole dog napping incident. After she posted missing dog posters around her neighborhood, she began actually receiving threatening text messages and a video that appeared to show Avery locked in a cage, at which point the texter, the dog nappers, demanded $1,200 ransom for his return. And that's when... Uh, Mr. McComer got to work running the dog nappers phone number from the text message through an online database and 
taking the video of the dog in the cage, you know, the proof of life uh, video or images uh, that the texter sent, ran that those photos uh, through the uh, his uh, computer system to extract the geolocation data. Um, and someone on Instagram recommended he follow an account that was associated with the phone number. And so using all of that information, the U.S. Marine veteran that used uh, the account to find the person, used that account to find a person who looked similar to the person in the doorbell video, uh, called in police. They were able to arrest a 16-year-old in the theft and returned Avery the dog back home safely. Isn't that awesome? That is all kinds of awesome that uh, <laughs> this Marine intelligence uh, veteran jumped in to, uh, to help rescue the dog and save the day. Awesome stuff. There you go. Some of the uh, most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your midweek Wednesday morning started. WFIN News. I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather, mostly cloudy today with a high of 41. Rain showers will move in late tonight, a low of 38. The American Red Cross is experiencing an urgent need for blood donors, and the University of Finley helped out by hosting a blood drive. I just like to give back, and it's an easy thing to do, and I like doing things that help others. That was Carol talking with WTOL 11 about why she donates blood. On our website, we have a list of upcoming blood drives and other ways you can help out. A Republican state senator from the Cleveland area is again running for U.S. Senate. Matt Dolan, whose family owns the Cleveland Guardians, plans to launch yet another U.S. Senate campaign. Dolan lost his race in the Republican Senate primary in the state last year. Now he's looking to unseat longtime Democratic incumbent Sherrod Brown. Brown has said he intends to seek a fourth term next year. I'm Jay Crawford. Sports betting became legal in Ohio at the beginning of the year, and in the first 10 days of this year, there were more calls to the Ohio Problem Gambling Helpline than in all of January of 2022. Derek Longmire is the executive director of the Problem Gambling Network of Ohio. He confirms there's been a spike in those helpline calls. The more opportunities there are to gamble, more Ohioans will gamble, and then more Ohioans will develop problems. I'm Brittany Bailey. The Finley-Hancock County Community Foundation's Fun for All series continues this weekend. The foundation says they've heard time and time again that finding affordable, family-friendly activities in Hancock County is a challenge. That's why they created the Fun for All series to bridge that gap. The first Fun for All event was Family Movie Day last weekend, and other events coming up include a free skate day at the Cube and a free play day at the Children's Museum of Finley. You can check out the full schedule on our website. The Finley Income Tax Department is in the process of distributing the annual income tax filing reminders for the 2022 tax year. Payments and completed municipal income tax returns can be placed in the drive-up drop box in the parking lot of the municipal building. There's also an additional drop box just inside the municipal building's Dorney Plaza entrance, and payments and returns can also be mailed to the Finley Income Tax Department. Remember, you can always get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. to our cover story this morning. Finley Mayor Christina Mern joins us uh, this morning from Washington, D.C. She is in the nation's capital this week for the annual winter meeting of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. And Mayor Mern, thanks very much for taking the time being with us this morning. We appreciate it. 
My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So, uh, again, we've talked about this uh, before. I want to kind of talk about it again, kind of set the stage. Think about the benefits of being involved as you are with the U.S. Conference of Mayors. What does this mean for the city of Findlay? Yeah, so there are a couple of main aspects. One, you know, just like any other association, it provides me a lot of benefit to network and uh, information share with my colleagues. You know, one thing that's unique about being a mayor is there's only one in every city. Right. And so being able to connect and hear um, how other communities are facing some of the same challenges we are facing or are responding to different um, issues or being innovative is always really beneficial. Two, it provides opportunity to um, advocate and have conversations with state and federal lawmakers that um, would benefit cities. So, for example, we have had conversations later today around um, housing affordability, housing development, and different programs that the federal government already offers for municipalities to better to utilize, um, but that maybe aren't being utilized to the extent that they could be if there were simple regulation changes. Um, for example, some of the um, HUD programs or CDBG dollars that cities across the country receive, including the city of Finley, that could be used for infrastructure projects to help spur development um, right now are very limited in what areas of communities they can be utilized because they have to be based off of um, income qualifying um, standards. So Mm -hmm. that's something that, you know, kind of is an advocacy example. And then finally is um, it really provides a fast track and a um, synthesized manner of learning about things that are impacting cities um, at the federal level and giving us opportunities to be on the front edge of implementing them, whether it be funding programs or, um, you know, other kind of grant programs that are being offered from either the government or nonprofit entities across the country. Um, It's a great resource in staff um, that the city then doesn't need to have because they are helping say, hey, here are these programs that we think you would qualify or maybe interested in. And I, they will also look for things um, through their staff if I say, hey, I'm looking for something to help with this project, um, and they, they help with that. So those are just a couple of uh, the ways that so, I've really seen them as a benefit to the city of Finley. So definitely worth the time away. And you mentioned some of the issues that are, that are on the agenda officially uh, for the uh, winter meeting of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. Uh, economic issues uh, obviously are always uh, one of the hot topics. You yeah. mentioned housing as, uh, as one of those. Uh, obviously, we know the e- economy uh, in general has been uh, hard on municipalities just as has been for uh, everyone else. Uh, they're also talking about environmental issues and immigration as one of the uh, big topics mm-hmm. this year. To what extent do some of those other um, uh, agenda items really impact the city of Findlay? Yeah, I, you know, uh, uh, the majority of them do. Whether we're dealing with it specifically or not, I think it's really important that we are informed and engaged in those discussions. Again, going back to that policy advocacy standpoint. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, at our uh, leadership uh, conversation a couple of months ago, we were talking about the immigration issue and that, you know, other communities are, are facing much larger than we are. 
Um, you know, and we were just talking about, okay, well, if we're going to say, hey, we need a, a federal approach to deal with this, we need to address then also border security, we, but we need to reform our immigration process to make it attainable for individuals that do want to come into our country, um, you know, it to, for them to be able to do so legally. So even though it's something that the city of Finley is not, is not specifically facing, I think it is something to have different perspectives at the table and be able to advocate on. Um, but otherwise, you know, the majority of the topics related to, you know, um, energy, and uh, that's one of the, that's the committee that I am on. Mm-hmm. And though our committee isn't specifically meeting, we talk about, you know, the energy transition and how do we make sure that um, energy is affordable. Obviously, um, different mayors have different perspectives on that as well. So I'm always bringing up, you know, affordability, things that our existing companies are doing to um, be sustainable long term, both as businesses as well as, you know, environmentally friendly. Um, you know, all, all of the all the things that mayors deal with mm-hmm. and have as priorities are the same across our communities. What? Our approaches may be different, yeah. but you know, safety, clean water, good infrastructure, and vibrant economies are really our priorities. Um, when I talk to mayors from across the country, no matter the size of the political aisle that they may be on or the size of their communities. Um, so that those are really the conversations that we have, and um, what? It's, it's it's really neat to see what other communities are doing, and and it spurs many ideas. I always joke that it's like going to church. Um, maybe this is just me, but when I'm sitting in church and listening to a sermon, I always get some of the specific takeaways that the you know pastor wants me to get. <laughs> but it also always spurs. It always spurs other thoughts, you know, is that my yeah. notes are always kind of like random things like, oh, look at this, research this, follow mm. up with, with so-and-so, well, uh, and my team gets a lot of notes <laughs> this that, week. That that actually kind of leads to the other question that I wanted to ask. What about uh, some of the off-the-agenda conversations? I mean, obviously, you're going to have time to uh, talk with uh, some of your peers uh, in, in other communities, uh, large and small, uh, from all across the country. What about what are some of those conversations like the things that aren't necessarily on the formal agenda that you know can can lead to uh, I mean I mean for example I know the uh, move with the mayor is is one of the things that you know you uh, have talked about you know getting ideas from other mayors through this um, networking opportunity yeah so the U.S. Conference of Mayor has. Um, vendors that attend and will have booths set up that, you know, may be able to provide services for communities or different programs that are offered, like Move with the Mayor through the National Forum on Cardiovascular Health and Stroke Prevention. Um, they also have their business council that provides um, kind of advising to them. And those members then also t- attend our meetings. And we have various receptions and dinners with them um, this week as part of our kind of you know, FaceTime and after hours events. And those are really beneficial because, uh, you know, one, there are individuals in the business sector who we may have opportunity to partner with. I spoke with a gentleman yesterday with Deloitte and, you know, we were talking about the economy and economic development and, you know, opportunities for partnership that may be there with the city of Finley. Um, I also spoke with a company that's doing a lot of work with the Intel project. And they said, Mm. hey, we want to come visit Finley and 
you know, I haven't told economic development this, you know, but they want to come visit Finley and do a tour and talk about, you know, how, how there may be opportunities, which is something that yeah. from the city of Finley standpoint, we've, we've definitely been keeping an eye on and been hoping for. Um, so it's exciting, you know, so, to make those additional inroads. Uh, because as we all know, relationships are not just about who you know, but who knows you and what they think about you. So being engaged in these conversations, being able to sit down and just have a couple minute conversation and get to know someone helps in the long run of uh, building the community, having resources and having, you know, sometimes people reach out to us and follow up saying, hey, there's there's something going on that we think that the city of Finley could benefit from, or we'd like to talk to you about this pilot program or different things like that. So, so those after hour conversations are, yeah. are very important. Yeah. So worth uh, recognizing that, uh, the, a lot of the the things that you get out of this are, are beyond the stuff that will be uh, necessarily covered in the news. A lot of uh, those types of conversations happening as well. And I'm also curious, just real quickly, um, who do you tend to most gravitate to or relate to uh, among your contemporaries? Uh, as you mentioned, I mean, this is a, a conference that involves cities of all sizes in all parts of the country. Who do you tend to relate most to? Is it other cities in our same area in the Midwest? Is it uh, cities that are more our size or is it uh, across the board? It really is across the board. I would say it kind of depends on the issue Mm -hmm. Um, because each community is, you know, I may like the way one community is addressing, um, you know, constituent communication um, and it could be, you know, any size community. Yeah. Um, I really like how, you know, another community of a, you know, is doing a, addressing their infrastructure planning. So it, it really depends on the topic. There is not um, one specific, um, you know, kind of model community that yeah. I say, oh yeah, we we follow up on them. And you know, I'm really proud that the city of Finley also is a strong model for a lot of different things, and and how we have. How we collaborate is something that people are always surprised by. Um, you know, how we structured hand-caught help. Um, you know, that's something that was kind of starting before COVID really took off during COVID. But I talk about that frequently. And, and how do we communicate resources and have a consolidated location for folks to go to? Mm. Because that's something that many other communities struggle with. Um, and then another one is how we have been addressing the opioid crisis. mental health, addiction, um, you know, and crime, you know, utilizing um, the LEAD program, utilizing uh, all of these different things that really set Finley apart, where we are in a much better position on some of these issues than other communities are. But I'm also, again, still able to glean information from them and make adjustments and, and think of things in a new way because of my interactions with my colleague. And Chris, one last thing I would mention is just because I'm not in the office definitely doesn't mean that I'm not still uh, (laughs) working very hard. Obviously, technology is great. So uh, checking emails, (laughs) responding to folks, communicating with the team. We are always working. It's the blessing and the curse of the (laughs) digital age. (laughs) Again, uh, Finley Mayor Christina Maroon with us this morning from Washington, D.C., where she is attending this week the annual winter meeting of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. We have more information on our webpage. And Mayor Maroon, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, Chris. And now
now to a follow-up to yesterday's cover story. You remember we mentioned that SNAP recipients are about to see a significant reduction to their benefits as a result of the uh, pandemic-enhanced benefits uh, coming to an end here within the next month or so. And that means, as we were talking yesterday, that many of those recipients will likely be forced to rely even more on organizations such as the West Ohio Food Bank. Tommy Harner joins us now from the West Ohio Food Bank. Tommy, thanks very much for uh, taking the time uh, this morning. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So, uh, obviously, you are aware uh, that these enhanced SNAP benefits are coming to an end. And how prepared are you for what will likely be an influx in demand? Well, fortunately, we did get notice of this um, earlier on, and we knew it was coming. So, the team and myself have been working together coming up with a good action plan of how we're going to address the increased need. So what our plans are is to look at doing more food distributions within the counties we serve, trying to give a little bit more food um, than we typically would just so it stretches a little bit further. We're also looking at going to where the individuals are instead of just having one central distribution. Mm-hmm. We're wanting to go into the low-income apartment complexes, maybe the senior where seniors live. Um, if there's any factories where there may be lower-income individuals working, we want to make sure we're going to where the individuals are so they have food on their tables for themselves and their families. I know that uh, during the pandemic, uh, there was the uh, issue, obviously a huge uh, influx in demand, and folks remember we talked about it, but there was also the challenge of just uh, acquiring enough food for uh, distribution, and I'm sure that that has not gotten any easier as we've seen over uh, the past year or so, uh, the way prices have increased. That also impacts you just as it does everybody else. Oh, absolutely. Um, where we used to be able to get a pallet of eggs for six, $700 is now costing us anywhere from 1500 to more um, for just one pallet. So we're really having to look at the dollars we have coming in And looking at partnering with other food banks to stretch those a little bit further, because if we can go in with another food bank and order a full truckload of product, we can get usually a little bit of a price cut than what it would be if we just ordered three or four pallets of something. So we're trying to be mindful of that and look at more partnerships and just very a bunch of different ways that we can try to get the food that's going to be needed as we see this increase continue. So uh, how have you, have you sort of recovered from, again, we, we talked about during the uh, pandemic, how that really threw everyone for a loop. It was uh, something that was not anticipated uh, and uh, caused this huge influx in, uh, in demand. I know food banks such as yourselves were kind of scrambling for, for a while. Have things kind of returned to normal uh, with respect to that? They haven't completely returned to normal, but we have been fortunate that the governor signed a bill that is allowing food banks to have more funding to purchase, um, and this is statewide, but to purchase more food so we have it available. Um, Things are starting to come around a little bit more than what they are and picking up, 
but we still aren't at the level we were pre-pandemic. So um, again, we're having to purchase more food than what we ever did before, but hopefully things start working out a little bit better. We get more USDA foods in and more from the state, and then you know we'll still be able to continue getting that out to those people that need it. And if memory serves, uh, there were measures that were put in place to allow uh, food banks to uh, deal directly with producers, uh, maybe eliminating some of the uh, middlemen in, in that whole thing. Has that been a benefit to you at all? It has. Um, we have some wonderful partners with manufacturers and farmers and um, you know we've been able to purchase straight through to them instead of going through a broker or another third party um, so that definitely helps and those partnerships I mean we, we are very blessed with those they've really people have stepped up and come through just to make sure that you know we're able to have the things we need and what about donations because Again, when many people think about uh, food banks, you think of uh, donations. Um, again, your most of what you distribute uh, is stuff that uh, is either donated at a uh, at a corporate level or at an institutional level, or that you purchase uh, directly from producers or uh, other food companies. How much of uh, of what you distribute uh, is, comes as a result of donations? Um, we get a little bit of donations. Uh, we used to get a lot through the retail stores, our, our corporate partners like Kroger, Meyer, Walmart, Aldi's, mm -hmm. and, and those like that. Um, and of course, over the past few months, theirs has dipped down a little bit just because of the, it's um, hard for them to get product on their shelves. Well, and the economics so, of it uh, as well. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So they're really being a little bit more cautious, I think, with their shrink and not having so much excess that they have to get rid of. We're still seeing that. It is coming back up a little bit more from what it was, mm -hmm. but we are having to look at towards the state and federal government programs that we provide along with purchasing that food more so than just the donations that we were receiving. Yeah. Uh, the upside of uh, this anticipated increase in demand with the decrease in SNAP benefits that's uh, that's coming is that uh, you have time to prepare. Again, as compared to the start of the pandemic when uh, that was really unanticipated and you got hit with it, this is something that you do actually have time to prepare for. That's the biggest difference here, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, we're right now we're reaching out to different organizations through each of our counties. If they see clientele come in that need food assistance, we're wanting to partner with them to get shelf stable food boxes that they can keep in their offices so they can immediately give that client something to eat that day. Um, so we definitely have time for a game plan versus when the pandemic hit. It was yeah. just a shock to everyone. And totally out of our wheelhouse and but um we managed to get through and we're, we're going to get through this too and how much of an increased demand are you expecting again as we were mentioning yesterday uh in some cases uh people uh, could see their snap benefits uh, cut in half uh when these uh, pandemic enhancements expire uh do you have any kind of projection as to how much of an increased demand you might see and what are your what are you preparing for in terms of that demand 
Well, I just pulled some numbers earlier just to look at where we were at in December versus November. And just in December, we had a 6% increase of clients needing food assistance than what we did in November. And out of that, there was 3,107 who were new to any kind of food assistance network. Mm -hmm. Um, So that means they've never visited a pantry, never visited a meal site. So they were new clients. And what's really shocking is when we look at that number, um, out of all those, and these are unduplicated numbers, so out of those individuals who were served in December, which was over 14,000, almost 15,000, over 2,400 of them were age 65 to 84, mm. and 113 of them were over 85 years old. Mm. So what that's what's disturbing. It's the seniors that... You know, many of them can't get out and work and earn that paycheck. So when they're getting these SNAP benefits cut, it's really going to put a strain on them because they're used to having this extra money to buy their food because they're having to offset with the medications they're having to buy and and all their living expenses. Right. So we're really wanting to try to make sure that we're being mindful of that and going to those senior complexes and making sure that they have that food um, that they need. Uh, again, preparing for the impact of the reduction in SNAP benefits that's coming within the next month or so. Tommy Harner of the West Ohio Food Bank with us this morning. We have a link on our webpage for more information about the work that they are doing across the, what is it, 12 counties that you serve, right? 12? Uh, we actually have 11. Yeah. 11 counties, yeah. uh, including yeah. Hancock County. Uh, again, go to goodmornings.net to learn more. Tommy, thanks very much for taking the time providing an update. We appreciate it. Oh, Thanks so much for having me, Chris. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Police in San Francisco are on the lookout for a suspect who stole an ambulance on Monday night. (laughs) Stole an ambulance. Yes, very inconspicuous vehicle. Wouldn't you think that if you were going to steal a vehicle that you would make it something inconspicuous that wouldn't be able to be immediately spotted? Something common? (laughs) You You could kind of blend in. No. This person or persons stole an ambulance, and it happened when paramedics were in the process of bringing a patient to the ambulance. Uh, Just before 7 p.m. Monday night, the California Highway Patrol was able to locate the ambulance using GPS and pursued it through San Mateo and Alameda counties before it got onto the city streets in Oakland, according to the San Francisco Fire Department, they stopped the pursuit out of caution for other drivers and eventually found the ambulance abandoned on a nearby street. By the way, the patient who was supposed to get into the ambulance was not hurt, and he's going to be fine, thank goodness, but the suspect or suspects have yet to be identified or located. (laughs) That sounds like something that someone would probably brag about to their friends. You know what I mean? You're not going to go steal an ambulance, take it for a joyride, and not tell anybody about it. Somebody knows something. Steal an ambulance. <clears throat> In what universe do you think that's a good idea? I mean, you're sitting around with your buddies, you're having a couple of beers, and you say, hey, I think I'm going to go steal an ambulance. Some people. Police are investigating in San Antonio after security screeners reportedly found an anti-tank weapon at the San Antonio International Airport. (laughs) 
Now, we often have stories about people who try to sneak strange things past airport security, but an anti-tank weapon is a new one. Uh, TSA, TSA officers found what appears to be an 84-millimeter Carl Gustav M4 anti-tank recoilless rifle in somebody's checked luggage uh, on Monday. Well, at least they checked it. You know, at least... At least they didn't try and take it in their carry-on. But still, um, and and there's they're more flexible with weapons in checked baggage, obviously, than they are in carry-on. Nothing is, is allowed. But there are certain weapons that you can actually take in your checked luggage. Uh, permissible weapons, however, do not include an anti-tank weapon. Uh, the uh, weapon was undeclared, which I guess makes sense. If you're going to take an anti-tank weapon, you're probably not going to declare that, you know? (laughs) Passengers are required to declare firearms, ammo, and any gun parts in their luggage during the check-in process. No word yet as to who owns the weapon or what consequences they may face. I would think they probably have it narrowed down, though, to... You know, a few hundred on the flight. Presumably, they know which flight uh, the luggage was assigned to, so you can eliminate, you know, and narrow it down to just the couple hundred people who are on that flight. But <laughs> wow, anti-tank weapon on an, on an airplane. Hmm. Uh, this is all kinds of unusual. In South Florida, a First Amendment rights activist. Uh, wants to build a giant statue of the male anatomy at a local public park in Boca Raton. Not the entire male anatomy, mind you, just a certain part of it. <laughs> Apparently it would be six foot, uh, six foot t- uh, tall, weighing 300 pounds, and pink. Uh, Chaz Stevens of Boca Raton has this grand plan. He says the symbol would not be obscene because it would be covered by an eight-foot-tall fence and out of plain sight, which kind of defeats the purpose, doesn't it? Um, he argues it is a religious display, no different from a Christmas tree or a menorah. Well, a little different from a Christmas tree. (laughs) And certainly different from a menorah. Uh, Mr. Stevens has petitioned the uh, city of Fort Lauderdale and eight other cities for permission as well. But so far, um, all uh, what Fort Lauderdale, Deerfield Beach, Boca Raton, and eight other cities, um, so far they have all said no thanks. <laughs> six foot, six foot tall, three hundred pound pink statue of, well, you know. I can't imagine why they wouldn't wouldn't want that in their public park. <laughs> Could be a tourist attraction, you know? All right. <laughs> Mo- moving on. Uh, this is kind of scary. If you work in a fast food restaurant or really a drive-thru of, of any kind, restaurant or... Um, you know, a pharmacy, you know, whatever, a fast food or a a drive-thru window of any kind, uh, listen to this. 
There was an apparent abduction attempt uh, in Auburn, Washington. A customer tried pulling a barista from a coffee shop through the window. Happened shortly after 5 a.m. Monday. Surveillance footage shows a man in a large vehicle grabbed the barista's arm as she was handing him his change for his drink. He tries to pull her out of the window and slip a zip tie over her hand. She was able to successfully fight him off. The man then sped away. Um, Police are now on the hunt for the suspect and say he could be identified thanks to the large tattoo across his left forearm. It is believed the suspect was driving a black or gray Chevy Silverado. The barista, who had been working at this uh, coffee shop for 15 years, uh, was shaken up, as you might imagine, as was uh, the rest of the team on duty at the time. Uh, Fast food workers seem to be using this as just one example of the nutty things they have either witnessed or experienced themselves. Um, I guess tip your fast food uh, server because you never know what they've been through. That is crazy. I mean, I've heard of, of people trying to, you know, rob a store through the drive through window, but that's, that's a new one. Attempted kidnapping. And finally, the broken news this morning. <laughs> this is out of Stillwater, Oklahoma. Of course it would be from Stillwater, Oklahoma. A cow reportedly on the loose. Um, they had a bit of a, an incident with a cow on the loose. But the cow's freedom jaunt was cut short when it took a wrong turn into the local olive garden. <laughs> The Stillwater Police Department announced the strange arrest of a cow at large. Uh, writing officers questioned the cow and learned that the bovine had heard about the never-ending soup and salad bar at Olive Garden. I guess was, uh, <laughs> the uh, police report says they tried to recommend the steak at Texas Roadhouse, but the cow declined. <laughs> the uh, local uh, police department had to uh, post later on Facebook that... Uh, the cow was unharmed, and the whole thing was a bit of a joke. So, <laughs> this uh, cow has been safely returned to its owner. Uh, there you go. Uh, the folks at Olive Garden have a story to tell. Uh, that is today's broken news report. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Take WFIN wherever you go with our updated mobile apps for iPhone and Android. And now you can listen to us on your Alexa device. Get the app at WFIN.com or in the App Store or Google Play. Plus, enable Alexa by searching for WFIN under Skills and you'll soon be saying, Alexa, play 1330 WFIN. And the best part is the apps and skills are absolutely free. On the air at 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. Online at WFIN.com and on your smartphone, tablet, and Alexa devices. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. This probably will not come as a big surprise. Most Americans will watch TV before bed. Now, sleep experts don't recommend this, but most of us do anyway. And according to a new survey of more than 2,000 people commissioned by the Best Mattress brand, 60% of Americans say they watch TV as part of their bedtime routine. And half say that they do this nearly every day of the week, watch some TV before 
they turn in. Survey shows that 50.9%, nearly 51% of Americans watch between 9 and 11 p.m. 42% switch off between 11 p.m. and 1 a.m. And what are we watching? Uh, It seems we are looking for a laugh right before bed. Family Guy, the most commonly watched show before bed, according to the poll. The Seth MacFarlane show uh, was uh, number one. Another of uh, his animated shows, American Dad, placed second. Third place, uh, another cartoon comedy, Bob's Burgers. And Saturday Night Live was fourth. And the most commonly watched show before bed. Uh, Rounding out the top five, football. Just football games in general. That's usually what I'll watch. If I'm watching right before bed, it's, you know, a late football game or something like that. Uh, The Simpsons was actually uh, close behind, just outside of the top five. So kind of interesting that so many animated shows uh, dominate the uh, top five shows that we watch before bed. All that said, uh, they noted that people who said that they don't watch TV before bed reported getting 10 extra minutes worth of sleep and an overall higher sleep, uh, higher sleep quality than those who do watch TV before bed. So maybe, just maybe, those sleep experts know what they're talking about. And though most of us don't follow that advice about no TV before bed. Well, you know, the last 40 years have brought remarkable breakthroughs in veterinary medicine that have transformed the diagnosis, the treatment, the quality of life for animals of all kinds. For example, did you know that we have doubled the lifespan of dogs in that time? Joining us this morning from the annual Veterinary Meeting and Expo in Orlando, Florida, are Gene O'Neill, Chief Executive Officer, and Dr. Dana Varble, Chief Veterinary Officer of the North American Veterinary Community. And uh, Dana, let me start with you. What are some of those advancements that have been made to extend and improve the quality of life for dogs uh, in particular? Because that's the animal that I think most all of us kind of relate most to. Relate most to absolutely. You know, 40 years ago, we were mostly adapting medications that were developed for humans for use in veterinary medicine. So we were taking things that were really developed for human processes and physiology and making them work for dogs and cats. Today, we specifically have medications that were developed with the dog in mind. So things like arthritis and heart medication work better with the dog's unique way of processing those medications. And we know they're a lot more effective. Add that to advancements in nutrition and surgery, and we're really seeing uh, the ability to help dogs live healthy lives extend even into their senior years. So we talk about some of the advances in veterinary medicine over the past four decades. What are some of the innovations that are coming out that are being presented at this year's expo that have you most excited for the future? Absolutely. You know, we're seeing new medications come to the market all the time. Um, I can't tell you how many have come up this week. It's been too many to list. But I'm really excited about one. There's a disease called feline infectious peritonitis, and it used to be nearly 100% fatal. New medications mean we might be able to see that disease be 100% curable in very, very near future. We're also seeing some really exciting new non-invasive ways to test and treat animals. So one of the innovations is something called heat diffusion imaging. 
And we're using that device to look at the skin, the lumps and bumps that older dogs get, and it's helping us decide if there's a risk of cancer and if we need to proceed further. So that's really exciting. It can get us answers in the clinic faster, right to our pet owners. Now, Gina, I want to bring you into the uh, conversation here. We have heard a lot recently about the crisis in human medicine, that there aren't enough doctors, there aren't enough nurses, and the ones that we do have are overworked and on the verge of burnout, which is, of course, affecting our quality of care. It's been in the news uh, again just this week, in fact. Do these same challenges exist in the field of veterinary medicine? You know, unfortunately, we're in that world today where there's, where there's a labor shortage in just about every aspect of uh, business, even the service industry. But there's, uh, there's solutions that are out there for the veterinary field. There's things like utilizing staff better to free up some of the doctor's time so you can spend more time with their, with their patients. There's telehealth, telemedicine that can be utilized to help the veterinarian free up some time. So even though there's a high demand for services, there are some solutions out there to address those demands. Again, you talk about some of those solutions uh, for the here and now, but uh, as we were talking uh, with Dana a little bit earlier, look into the future. What can be done to make this a field of greater interest for more young people to get into moving forward? Right. So the, the big thing there is the out, outreach to the communities. And we were, we were proud enough to host 20 or so middle schoolers this week to get them, give them an idea of what it's like to be a veterinarian for today. They're at that age where they're turning the corner to, to figure out what they're doing with their lives and those that really love the profession. So we allowed them to come into the facility and work with veterinarians on model dogs to figure, to, to see what it's like to perform surgeries and preventative medicine, um, and, and give them an idea of what it's really like if that's the if, if, if that's the profession they choose to go through. And, and they were, and they were, they're at that stage in life where they're where they they need to make that decision. So yeah. I think that fills the pipeline in the future, and uh, we'll continue to do that here at NEDC. You know, I, I want to ask this just because I, I've always wondered, uh, again, comparing it to human medicine where you have certain specialists in certain fields, uh, with veterinarians, uh, do, do veterinarians often uh, specialize uh, in, say, domestic animals versus farm animals, that kind of thing? I mean, do you see that type of specialization in, in veterinary? Because I think most of us uh, consider veterinarians to be kind of one size fits all. Well, we really are, but, you know, the exciting thing now is as this profession has grown and as we're seeing this advancement, we do have more specialization in veterinary medicine. So it goes even beyond what types of animals we work on, and it can go right down to disease processes. Hmm. So these days we have veterinary surgeons, we have veterinary eye doctors, we have veterinary dentists, veterinary dermatologists. It's really quite exciting to see where this field can go. Yeah, so not just a, a general practice, as it were. And we were talking about some of the advancements uh, that you're seeing on display here uh, this uh, this year at the uh, at the expo and the uh, convention. What about some of the uh, more fun stuff, some of the uh, topics that kind of raised your eyebrow or, or have really uh, surprised you? Well, yeah, there's a couple of great things to talk about here. One, we're seeing aging treated more like a disease. And if aging is a disease, well, then I can prevent it, right? There are things I can do, actions I can take to really improve the lifespan, but also how the health span of dogs and cats today. Uh, but we like to have fun here. We are veterinarians. We do see everything. So we have great sessions on things like ultrasounds and whales and dolphins and even sharks. We're seeing how to do microsurgery on hedgehogs so that we can remove breast 
hamster in them. Hmm. And I'm even learning about how to spay something as tiny as a hamster. <laughs> Again, uh, Gene O'Neill is Chief Executive Officer, Dana, uh, Dr. Dana Varble, Chief Veterinary Officer of the North American Veterinary Community, uh, joining us from Orlando, Florida, the annual Veterinary Meeting and Expo. Where do folks get more information on all of this? Sure. So for all your listeners, I encourage them to visit us at nabc.com to see what it is we do here year-round at the North American Veterinary Community, and especially at the show that we hold here in Orlando every year in Orlando. We will link it up on our webpage as well. Thanks to both of you for uh, joining us this morning. We appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having us. And that will finish up our podcast for today. Thanks again to all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. And remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each and every day on the program at our webpage. And that, of course, is goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow on the program, pro-life advocates this week will take part in the first March for Life of the post-Roe era, but they're not the only ones mobilizing their base. How pro-choice proponents are advocating for access to abortion in a very different environment than they've been used to. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. Catch you back here tomorrow.